Amen. You may stand and greet our speaker this morning. Chris Weiniger is from Norfolk Life Point Church. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, joy to be with you guys this morning. As Gordon said, my name is Chris. I uh, am a pastor in Norfolk. That's the rest of the way. Uh, that's the way the rest of Nebraska would say it. Norfolk. If you're from there, that's how you can tell who's native. Um, I get the joy of Haddon. You got to stand up and and wave. This is my son Haddon. He is with me today. Excited for him to be here. That's right. They're clapping for you, buddy. Hey, well. Um, uh, I'm excited that you guys are in the book of Mark, and so if you've got a Bible, you can open with me to Mark chapter 15 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of that chapter. I'm not exactly sure how you've broken everything down this semester as you've been going through this, um, but in chapter 14, the previous chapter where you guys have been, um, that's where you saw Jesus share the Last Supper with his disciples. You saw him betrayed by Judas, also betrayed, um, and probably what you looked at last time was betrayed by Peter as well. You see him arrested, you see him put on trial, and we're going to pick up today in Mark 15 verse 1 um, with him still on trial and this process of him moving toward the cross continuing. Here's what we read, Mark 15 verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. Real quick, who's this council, the whole council? Well, in the chapter right before this, we find out that this whole council is a, a group known as the Sanhedrin. You can sort of think of them as the, the Jewish Supreme Court. It was made up of, of uh, political figures and leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, people from across the political and religious spectrum. Um, if you were to sort of translate that in today's culture, it might be like religious Republicans and religious Democrats and sort of just as divided as those groups might be. And they were that divided then. Um, but what united them was a hatred for this man named Jesus. We've got to understand a little bit about their system if we're going to understand this story. In the, in the first century, uh, the Romans were in control of everything, but in order to keep the peace, one of the things that they would do with the people who, uh, the nations that they conquered, is that they would allow those people to, to, to continue to, to rule in, in some ways. They would, they would, um, let a lot of them have their own laws, their own systems and governments to be put in place as long as it didn't contradict Roman law. And so this is why even though the Romans are in charge and Pilate is this guy who's a governor, the, the Jews still have their own king and their own courts and their own system of law. In fact, the Jewish court system could prosecute and sentence people for almost anything except death. If you were going to send out a death sentence and execution, then that could only be carried out by the Romans. And so if they want to kill Jesus, which is what they want to do, they're going to need the Roman governor, Pilate, to sign off on this. Verse 2, Pilate turns to Jesus and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. If you look in the other gospels, you find out that what they're accusing Jesus of is, is treason. So they bring Jesus to this power-hungry Roman bureaucrat named Pilate, and they're claiming that Jesus is a, a revolutionary. He, he's committed treason. He, he's deserving of death because this man is a national security threat. He's claiming to be a king. 
and he's wanting to usurp you. Verse 4, Pilate again, ask him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And it's, it's almost like Pilate is sort of baffled that he's not defending himself, that he's, he's not standing up and saying, hey, I'm not guilty, I haven't done this, right? But, but if you know prophecy from the Old Testament, it, this is prophesied that he wasn't going to make a defense of himself. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, now at the feast, that's the Passover, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now, now this, this system of government that we talked about a little bit, the Romans are in control, but they, let the, they, they, they sort of let the Jewish people do their thing. Well, that relationship was always sort of strained, almost like the big brother-little brother relationship, right? Big brother's fine with little brother doing whatever as long as it, you know, it doesn't contradict what the big brother wants to do. Neither of these groups, the Roman or the Jews, particularly liked each other, but the Romans wanted a good working relationship. They wanted the peace to be kept. And so they would do things like this. There were other examples, but this would happen sort of a yearly thing where they would release a prisoner to the Jewish people. Usually a Jewish prisoner, they would release back. It was sort of a sign of goodwill. It was a gesture. Verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to, you, to do as he usually did for them. Now, now, Pilate is savvy enough as a leader to know that the Jewish leaders are just being manipulative and, and vindictive. He knows that this whole thing is a sham. He knows that Jesus isn't actually guilty of what they're accusing him of. And so, verse 9, he answered them, Hey, do you, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Back in verse 7, Mark calls Barabbas a murderer. The Gospel of Matthew calls Barabbas a notorious prisoner. Luke calls him an insurrectionist. John calls him an anarchist. So in four Gospels, we get these four pictures of Barabbas, and they aren't good pictures. He's not a good guy. Pilate says, hey, do you want me to give for you to you Jesus, the traveling preacher? And they say, no, we want the terrorist. Verse 12, Pilate again said to them, then, then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. Public opinion can change pretty quickly, can it? If you know the story, and it was a few chapters back in your study in Mark, but five days, I mean, five days before this, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and how does he enter in? Mark 11, 9 and 10, the crowds shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Five days later, no longer Hosanna. Son of David, the king that we've been looking for. Crucify him. In, in five days, how does a swing take place like that? I mean, they don't even have social media, right? Right? And it's because they had put their nationalistic 
hope in this man. When, when, when the Messiah comes, when this one that we think is the son of David, the, the Hosanna, when he comes, um, when he comes into the city, they're waving palm branches at him. Palm branches were, were something like what our American flag might be for us. It was this nationalistic symbol. They're throwing their cloaks on the road. He's the king. They think that he has come to restore their nation to greatness and to overthrow the Romans. But what happens over the course of the five days in Jerusalem when Jesus is preaching and it becomes very apparent that he's not the Savior that they want? They turn on him. Crucify him. And they chanted over and over, crucify him. Crucify him, verse 15. So Pilate, and we get a clue into his character here, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, beaten Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, historically speaking, what we know about Pilate is that Pilate's in trouble. Politically speaking, he wasn't great. Uh, had a low approval rating. In fact, at this very moment in history, Tiberius Caesar actually had Pilate on probation. The last thing that Pilate needed was the Jewish people rioting. If, if the word got back to Rome, he was finished. And, and, and in, in that world, if they removed you from political office, there was a pretty good chance they were going to remove you from the earth, if you're tracking, all right? So, he, 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 here's what I want you to see in this moment right? Because we're trying to get it, put ourselves in this place. Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty. In fact, in Luke's telling of the story four times, he says, hey, he's not guilty. But Pilate thinks to himself, if an innocent man has to die to save me, then so be it. Which leads to how I want to apply these 15 verses for us. In this story, we see three characters three groups of people who, who all have interactions with Jesus. And, and even though Jesus is the one who's on trial in this story, they're in effect going to be on trial themselves, and they represent three types of people who are exposed, who are unmasked when it comes to what they think about Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, here's um, the, the first group, the council, the, the Sanhedrin. These are the people who bring the charges against Jesus, and here's what they represent. They represent the religious self-righteous, unwilling to surrender control to Jesus. The religious self-righteous, unwilling to surrender control to Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, if you're familiar with, you know, anytime there's interactions with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees or, or with the Sanhedrin, um, these guys are pretty meticulous when it comes to keeping the letter of the law. However, they routinely miss the heart of the law. They get the details right, but they miss the big picture. So, so for instance, and just for examples, I was doing my own personal Bible reading the other day, and I came across this one that I thought was interesting. Um, here's the kind of thing that Jesus would just sort of boldly say to them. And it's the reason why they hated it. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Right? So they're tithing off their spice rack. And if you're given out of like the spice cabinet, I, you're taking this pretty seriously. Jesus continues, But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
So, so they would latch on to, to, to the rules of God, but they would lose, they've lost a heart for God. And so Pilate comes along and he recognizes their hatred for Jesus came from their resentment of Jesus. Jesus was popular among the people. Jesus spoke as one with authority. Jesus did miracles that they couldn't do. Who is this uneducated, backwoods, hillbilly guy from Nazareth who speaks with authority like that to us? Who is this guy? They were used to being in charge, calling the shots. They liked being in charge. But now Jesus has gained a lot of followers. And, and uh, even though we're going to see that the followers aren't maybe legit, um, but he, Jesus was a threat to the status quo. As long as Jesus was in the picture, they couldn't do whatever it is that they wanted to do. Now, now if, if we read through the story or you hear a message or something like that, and someone like the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees or the Pharisees or people like that come along, we, we automatically sort of think about them as the bad guys, don't we? And they were the bad guys, but they wouldn't have thought of themselves as the bad guys. They were the good guys. They were the guys who were always in church, leading a church. They were morally upright. They were the keepers of the law. They were the religious establishment. People in the first century wouldn't have thought of the Sanhedrin as bad guys. If your child grew up to be part of the Sanhedrin, then you're like, man, I'm crushing it as a parent. But when the God that they said they worshipped showed up in the flesh insisting that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and proving it over and over and over, that he was Lord, that he was in charge, they resisted. In other words, they were so cemented in their way of life, their understanding of morality, their preferences, their way of reading Scripture, that they were unwilling to be interrupted or changed when God showed up in front of them. And how easy is it for us to do the exact same thing? Right, We can show up at a place like school, we can follow the school's rules, follow our parents' rules, we can live upright lives, but when Jesus confronts you, or when his word challenges you, how do we respond? When the Holy Spirit convicts you, how do we respond? There are only two ways to live in response to Jesus. Two ways to live in response to him. You're either surrendered to his lordship or you live in rebellion against his lordship. That's it. Surrendered to his lordship or in rebellion against his lordship. The Sanhedrin asks us to consider, have we fully surrendered control? Or maybe we've considered, we've, 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 we've given control in certain areas, but you know what? Not in this area. Have we fully surrendered control? Second character, Pilate. Pilate. Pilate represents passive people pleasers, unwilling to take a stand for Jesus. Passive people pleasers, unwilling to take a stand for Jesus. Throughout the story, and Mark clues us in on kind of what Pilate's thinking, Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty. He didn't want to execute him. But because of his personal situation, he was unwilling to speak up, stand up, or or do the right thing. Now, um, it's easy to sort of 
read through the story of this and just kind of shake our heads at Pilate, but, but, but can't we sort of sympathize with him as a character? I mean, he's already on probation. He's thinking to himself, if I botch this, word gets back to Rome, I'm done. I mean, this is a lot of pressure. He refused to take a stand and do the right thing because he weighed the implications of doing the right thing. He weighed the implications of taking a stand and he decided it doesn't worth it. Pilate is the guy who knows the truth about Jesus. He's not guilty. And actually, um, don't balk at this too quickly, but he kind of seems like the one guy in the story who's kind of on team Jesus. I mean, the disciples ran and fled They're not standing up for Jesus, but here's Pilate at least asking sort of probing questions like, I don't know that he's guilty. Are you guys sure that he's guilty? Compared to the Sanhedrin, he feels like the good guy. He's just caught between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't outright reject Jesus. He just refuses to stand up for Jesus. And how often can the same thing be said of us? It's easy to get excited about Jesus, to stand up for Jesus, maybe in a setting like this. It's easy to live for Jesus when you're at youth group. But when you're with your friends, what about then? When gossip starts, what about then? When complaining starts, what about then? In the middle of the game, when you're taking on the school that you just absolutely can't stand, what about then? Like Pilate, it's so easy to let everything else crowd out our thinking. Pilate causes us to ask, hey, where in my situation, what, where am I tempted toward passivity when I know the right thing to do? I know I need to not be on that website. I know that I shouldn't laugh at that video that that I'm sitting around in a circle watching with my friends what voices do I let prevail because he let the voices of the crowds control him now listen let's talk about voices for a minute because sometimes I think a lot of those voices are real some of you guys you've been given a hard time for following Christ those voices are real some of you guys have been laughed at for the rules that your parents have set for you Or you get on social media and you let the voices of negativity or gossip or whatever fill your minds and control you, right? Those are real. But as I reflect on my own life, I think a lot of the voices that I'm tempted to let control me actually aren't aren't real. They're they're hypothetical voices in in my head. I I don't want to let somebody down. And I think that I might let them down. Or it's the voice of disapproval man I I just really want those people to like me and if I do this then they're not going to like me right what will people say if and then we just sort of let our minds run wild Pilate asked us to, to consider what are the voices that we're letting rule that keep us from standing up and doing what we know to be right here's the last one it's Barabbas Barabbas Ironically, Barabbas' name means son of the father. Clearly not a good guy, but the name is interesting. Barabbas represents the guilty spared by the death of Jesus. The guilty spared by the death of Jesus. I want you to, for a moment, um, 
I, I wasn't going to do this, but close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes just for a few moments. I want you to just put yourself in the place of Barabbas. You're guilty because you're a murderer, you're a rioter, you're a notorious prisoner. And you find yourself sitting in a prison cell on death row. And you're expecting that they're going to come and they're going to come for your execution at some point. And from your cell, off in the distance, you hear a crowd chanting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And it keeps getting louder, Crucify Him! And then you hear the the shuffle of guards coming down the hall toward you. And you think to yourself, man, they're finally coming for me. My time left on this earth is short. They open up your cells. They say, get up. And they grab you and they drag you down the hall all the while these chants of crucify him keep getting louder and louder louder then all of a sudden you find yourself outside in the court and your eyes adjust to the light around you and then the strangest thing happens they take your shackles off and they say you're free to go he's going in instead of you now open your eyes what's barabbas thinking in the moment of this exchange Barabbas realizes that the chants are directed at him, this guy named Jesus, instead of me. He's going to be beaten instead of me. He's going to carry a cross instead of me. He's going to die instead of me. In Barabbas, we see a picture of the gospel. Just do a compare and contrast between these men. Barabbas took life. Jesus gives life. Barabbas is a guilty man who goes free. Jesus is an innocent man who's condemned. Barabbas had a death sentence over his head, but he walks away because Jesus took his place. Barabbas, I think, is one of the very first people who can say, Jesus died instead of me. And isn't this the entire reason why Jesus came? A couple weeks ago, Easter, Two days before that, Good Friday, I was talking to my kids about Good Friday, and we are talking about the death of Jesus, and one of my kids wanted to know why we call it Good Friday. He said, I think it should be called Sad Friday. And I said, you know, that's, yeah, that's good. But the reason that we call it Good Friday is because on that day, the Son of God who descended from heaven died on a cross in our place for our sin. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to a cross. That's not just good news. That's the best news. And that's the hope that we have. Now, I'm not saying that Barabbas comes to know eternal salvation in this moment. In fact, I think that he probably doesn't. But it's this picture of what Jesus does for us in an eternal, salvific level. We have no idea how Barabbas responded. How does Barabbas respond to getting out of prison and finding his freedom? Did he respond, man, my life has changed. 
Jesus has took my place. I'm going to give everything to follow after him. Or did he say, that was close. And just go back to his old life. I'm going to guess the latter because we don't ever hear about him again. But the story of Barabbas, more importantly, should cause us, hmm, not, not, not how did Barabbas respond, but how do I respond? How do I respond to Jesus taking my place? My place. So these three characters, Jesus died for self-righteous religious people who need a righteousness greater than the Achan ever earn or achieve. A righteousness that he earned and achieved that he imputes to us. Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness so that those who are longing for approval just want everybody to be pleased with them can have the Father's approval who looks at them and is pleased because what he sees is his son. Jesus takes the place of the rebel so they can go free. This exchange takes place by faith. By faith, by putting your trust in Jesus, by turning from sin and putting your faith in him. So, so I got three, I want to take these three characters and I just want to give you guys some questions. I know you got D groups after this and, and uh, maybe these will help guide your discussion a little bit, but, but you can write these down. Number one, the Sanhedrin. Here's sort of the question. Where am I tempted to maintain control? rather than submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Right, where are the places where I just haven't submitted myself to the lordship of Jesus? Number two, Pilate. Where am I tempted to be passive? Where am I tempted to be passive? Maybe that's giving in to peer pressure. Maybe that's being passive towards sin rather than putting it to death. Where am I tempted toward passivity? Here's the third one, Barabbas. In your own words, how do you see a picture of the gospel in the story of Jesus and Barabbas? How do you see a picture of the gospel? Let's pray. God, we're a grateful people. You're holy. You're righteous. You're just. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're the creator of all things, which means you are the designer of all things. And as the creator, the designer, the owner, God, we don't get to define things. You define things. God, before you, we're guilty. And yet because of your love, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can find hope, we can find salvation in you. And so, Spirit of God, I I pray just in this room right now that you would give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, an understanding of ourselves, maybe for those in this room, if they haven't given their lives to Christ, that you would call them 
God, that you would convict us of sin. Show us where we're pushing against you. God, that you would give us encouragement. Some of us need to just be encouraged to this truth that we have a righteousness that's not our own. God, I thank you for these students. I pray that you would bless them, bless the school. We pray it in your name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys.